Welcome to the Histrionics Podcast, where I review pieces of history that aren't very well known or deserve a little more attention. Today I'm going to discuss the hero of a tragic train accident, a weather shift unlike anything you've heard before, and a cyclone that killed nearly half a million people. November 7th, 1907. Jesus Garcia saves the entire town of Nakazari by driving a burning train full of dynamite 3.7 miles away before it can explode. By the end of the 19th century, Nakazari was a lively frontier town of about 5,000 people. A worldwide copper boom promised to be the town's path to future wealth and workers flocked into town. In 1896, an important copper reserve was discovered nearby at a town called Polaris. All the supplies had to be brought into town by train, and most items came from Arizona or California. In 1899, the Moctezuma Copper Corporation built its own five-mile-long, narrow-gauge railway from the mine in Polaris to Nakazari. The elevation difference along this line is considerable, more than 2,000 feet from the mine to town. Following concentration, the ore was taken to Douglas, Arizona for smelting. These exports of ore became much easier in 1904 when a standard gauge railway was extended to Nakazari. Jesus Garcia was born on November 13, 1883 in Sonora. His mother moved with her eight children to Nakazari in 1898. Garcia started to work for the railroad as a water boy, quickly being promoted to switchman brakeman, fireman, and finally, by the age of 20, to engine driver. His work ethic was much appreciated by his employers. In 1904, they paid for Garcia and seven colleagues to attend the World Fair in St. Louis, Missouri. Garcia drove locomotive number two, transporting mineral ore and supplies between the loading yards in the town and the mine. The hazards faced by train drivers included stray donkeys wandering onto the tracks, sabotage to the railroads, and brake failures. In October of 1907, Garcia managed to halt a train whose brakes failed by reversing the wheels and dumping piles of sand onto the tracks. The train finally halted just a few feet from the end of the line. On November 7, 1907, Garcia was working as usual and had several return trips scheduled to the mine. Garcia operated a 060 locomotive built to order in 1901. The engines relied on wood for fuel and had to carry copious supplies of water and also sand to increase the friction between the rails and the wheels. When Garcia arrived for work, he was told the train's usual conductor had been admitted to the hospital, so he would have to manage the train without him. By midday, Garcia had completed two trips down from the mine with dozens of loaded ore cars. While other workers tended the engine and loaded the cars for the next trip, Garcia had lunch at his mother's house. Just after 2 p.m., Garcia set off again towards the mine. Locomotive number two was pulling several cars, the front two of which were open cars containing 70 boxes of dynamite, detonators, and fuses. This was strictly against company regulations, which stated that dynamite must be carried only in the rear cars. Other cars that day contained bales of hay. 
As they pulled out the lower yard, stray sparks from the train's chimney stack were blown back onto the first cars, causing a box of dynamite to begin smoking. Railway workers aboard the train desperately tried to douse the smoke, but their efforts failed and the box caught fire. Garcia realized that if the train exploded near the lower yard, the resulting detonations of the company's dynamite and gas tanks would almost certainly destroy most of Nakazari. He also realized that if he jumped from the train, it might run out of steam and roll backwards toward the town before it exploded. Garcia ordered everyone else off the train and opened the throttle wide, hoping to put a small ridge between him and the town and perhaps reach Camp 6, a secondary loading area en route to the mine. He most likely assumed that after reaching Camp 6, he could leap from the train as that area was uninhabited and he would continue into the wilderness. By 2.20 p.m., Garcia was entering Camp 6 and had driven the train over three and a half miles out of town. Just then, the cars exploded. Garcia was killed instantly by the massive blast. He died just a week before his 24th birthday. At least 12 people were also killed in the resulting carnage. Amazingly, the engine remained on the tracks. The blast was heard up to 10 miles away. It shattered the glass in many of Nakazari's buildings. Twisted metal was hurled through the air, raining down several miles away. Garcia's quick thinking and brave actions saved the main part of the town. Within days, he was being hailed as a hero. Two years after the accident, the town unveiled a permanent memorial to Jesus Garcia, the hero of Nakazari. Sadly, his fiancée did not live to see this. She died, broken-hearted, less than a year after Garcia. On November 9th, the State Congress decreed that Nakazari would henceforth be known as Nakazari de Garcia. Garcia was also awarded the American Cross of Honor. Ten years after the train explosion, Garcia's ashes were spread close to his monument in Nakazari. In 1944, the federal government declared that the National Day of the Railroad Worker would be celebrated every year on November 7th. Jesus Garcia became a national hero. Many streets, schools, bridges, and parks have been named after him, and there are monuments to him in many towns across the world, from Mexico to the UK and as far as Germany. Here's my take on Jesus Garcia. That man possessed bravery most couldn't stomach. The normal reaction would be to jump and run. Some may try to send the train barreling towards the hills before leaping off, but very few would stay with the train to ensure it got to a distance that would ensure the safety of the rest of the town. It's really a shame that Jesus didn't have enough time to jump off the train, but he will always be remembered as a hero. Hopefully trains stop transporting hay and dynamite together, too. November 11th, 1911. Many cities in the Midwestern United States break their record highs and lows on the same day as a strong cold front rolls through. On Saturday, November 11th, 1911, a cold snap known as the Great Blue Norther, or 11-11-11, 
affected the central United States. Many cities broke their record highs going into the 70s and 80s early that afternoon. By nightfall, cities were dealing with temperatures in the teens and single digits. This is the only day in many Midwest cities where the record highs and lows were broken on the same day. The cold front was so strong that several states saw record monthly highs on November 10th and 11th and record monthly lows on November 12th and 13th. This was especially true in Missouri, where one station had a high of 93 degrees Fahrenheit before the storm, and after the storm, another station had a low of negative 3 degrees Fahrenheit. The main cause of such a dramatic cold snap was an extremely strong storm system separating warm, humid air from frigid Arctic air. Dramatic cold snaps tend to occur mostly in the month of November, though they can also come in February or March. These arrivals of continental polar or Arctic air masses are generally called northers. Alongside the dramatic temperature swings, the cold front brought a mass of steel blue clouds and a destructive tornado outbreak to parts of the Midwest. Some cities experienced tornadoes on Saturday and a blizzard on Sunday. The front produced severe weather and tornadoes across the upper Mississippi Valley, a blizzard in Ohio, and the windy conditions caused a dust storm in Oklahoma. A blizzard even occurred within one hour after an F4 tornado hit Rock County, Wisconsin. At least 12 tornadoes touched down across five states, resulting in 13 fatalities. Hundreds of structures were destroyed, and many areas had to conduct search and rescue missions in the middle of a blizzard. The outbreak was one of the worst on record for the North Central states. Here's my take on the Great Blue Norther. A 90-degree swing in Missouri? Are you kidding me? That is hard to imagine. The tornado outbreak, followed by a sudden drop in temperatures, reminds me of the helicopter scene in The Day After Tomorrow. I'd like to witness something like that someday. Watching from the ground, and without dying, of course. November 13, 1970, a 150-mile-an-hour tropical cyclone hits the densely populated East Pakistan, killing an estimated 500,000 people in one night. On November 1st, Tropical Storm Nora developed over the South China Sea in the West Pacific Ocean. The system lasted for four days before degenerating over the Gulf of Thailand on November 4th and subsequently moved west over the Malay Peninsula on November 5th. The remnants of this system contributed to the development of a new depression in the central Bay of Bengal on the morning of November 8th. The cyclone brought widespread rain to the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, with very heavy rain falling in places on November 8th and 9th. Port Blair recorded over 5 inches of rain on November 8th, and there were a number of floods on the islands. A nearly 6,000-ton freighter en route from Calcutta to Kuwait was sunk by the storm on November 12th with the loss of all 50 people on board. The ship sent out a distress signal and reported experiencing hurricane-force winds before it sank. 
There was also widespread rain in West Bengal and South Assam. The rain caused damage to housing and crops in both Indian states, with the worst damage occurring in the south. The cyclone traveled north, intensifying as it progressed. It reached its peak with winds of 115 miles per hour on November 10th and made landfall on the coast of East Pakistan on the following afternoon. The storm surge devastated many of the offshore islands, wiping out villages and destroying crops throughout the region. The storm grew into a severe cyclone on November 11th and began to turn towards the northeast as it approached the head of the bay. It developed a clear eye and reached its peak intensity later that day, with three-minute sustained winds of 115 miles per hour and one-minute sustained winds of 150 miles per hour. The cyclone made landfall on the East Pakistan coastline during the evening of November 12th, around the same time as the local high tide. The meteor station in Chittagong, 60 miles to the east of where the storm made landfall, recorded winds of 90 miles per hour before its equipment was blown away. A ship anchored in the port in the same area recorded a peak gust of 138 miles per hour about 45 minutes later. As the storm made landfall, it caused a 33-foot-high storm surge at the Ganges Delta. In the port at Chittagong, the storm tide peaked at about 13 feet above the average sea level. Radio Pakistan reported that there were no survivors on the 13 islands near Chittagong. A flight over the area showed complete devastation throughout the southern half of Bola Island. The rice crops of Bola Island, Haisha Island, and the nearby mainland coastline were destroyed. Several seagoing vessels in the ports of Chittagong were destroyed as well, and the airports were under three and a half feet of water. Over three and a half million people were directly affected by the cyclone, and the total damage from the storm was estimated at 86 and a half million, almost 670 million today. The survivors claimed that about 85% of homes in the area were lost or severely damaged, with the greatest destruction occurring along the coast. 90% of marine fishermen in the region suffered heavy losses, including the destruction of 9,000 offshore fishing boats. Of the 77,000 onshore fishermen, 46,000 were killed by the cyclone and 40% of the survivors were affected severely. In total, approximately 65% of the fishing capacity of the coastal region was completely destroyed by the storm, in a region where about 80% of the protein consumed comes from fish. Agricultural damage was also very severe, with the loss of 63 million worth of crops and 280,000 cattle. Three months after the storm, 75% of the population was receiving food from relief workers and over 150,000 relied on aid for their food. There are questions as to how much information about the cyclone from Indian weather authorities was transmitted to East Pakistan authorities. This is because the Indian and East Pakistani weather services may not have shared information given the Indo-Pakistani friction at the time. A large part of the population was reportedly taken by surprise by the storm. There were indications that East Pakistan's storm warning system was not used properly, 
which probably cost tens of thousands of lives. The Pakistani government, led by General Yahya Khan, was criticized for its delayed handling of relief operations following the storm, both by local political leaders in East Pakistan and by the international media. During the election that took place a month later, the opposition Awami League gained a landslide victory in the province, and continuing unrest between East Pakistan and the central government triggered the Bangladesh Liberation War, which led to the 1971 Bangladesh Genocide and eventually concluded with the creation of the independent country of Bangladesh. The exact death toll from the Bola cyclone will never be known, but at least 300,000 fatalities were associated with the storm, and possibly as many as 500,000. The Bola cyclone is the deadliest tropical cyclone on record, and also one of the deadliest natural disasters in modern history. A comparable number of people died in the 1976 Tangshan earthquake, the 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake, and the 2010 Haiti earthquake. But because of uncertainty in the number of deaths in all four disasters, it may never be known which one was the deadliest. Here's my take on the Bola cyclone. Death tolls this high are really hard for me to grasp. It's so sad, so tragic, and so scary. I try to wrap my head around things like this, but I really can't. Thank you everyone for tuning in, and I will see you next time.